coming up on this week's episode and our first episode of the Check Your Balances podcast, an interview with the author of The Psychology of Money and partner at the Collaborative Fund, Morgan Housel, coming up next. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed, and please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. All right, everybody, welcome to the Check Your Balances podcast. I am Ross Anderson, and I am joined by my partner, Dan Maseka. Hey, Ross, I'm happy to finally be behind a podcast microphone with you, and welcome everyone listening. Yeah, this has been uh, something you and I have talked about and been planning for for a little while here, and and so thrilled to, to finally have it up and running, and uh, welcome everybody to the show. Yeah, we finally uh, bought the podcast equipment, so we have no excuses, and uh, we got to make the most of it. That's true. So I guess just a quick background on on the two of us and, and why uh, anybody would want to listen. Uh, you and I are both certified financial planners. We run a financial planning practice, uh, an investment management practice, where we work directly with individuals. But really, I think our philosophy is about balance. And that's kind of where the name Check Your Balances comes from, is that we're going to be exploring a bunch of different topic ideas while really looking at the trade-offs, that, that we don't believe finance is black and white, right and wrong and in almost every example, but that it's simply a matter of trade-offs and understanding where you're willing to make them. Right. And I think part of what I enjoyed the most about working with you and you know working with other financial planners as well is that discussion about what those trade-offs are. And uh, our hope is to bring that open exploration to you so you can virtually take part in that discussion with us. Awesome. So we would certainly encourage anybody that's listening and enjoys the show, if you could give us a rating wherever you listen to podcasts or subscribe. Uh, we also do have an email address, which is checkyourbalances at outlook.com. Uh, if you've got things that you're interested in and want to hear us cover as part of our show, we would welcome any feedback or thoughts that you have. But, but without any further ado, uh, let's turn it over to Morgan Housel. All right, everybody, we are so thrilled today to be welcoming to the podcast Morgan Housel, the author of The Psychology of Money. The book has done great. Morgan, congrats on all the success, and thank you for joining us. Thanks, guys. Happy to be here. Yeah, Morgan, so we, we've been reading your stuff for a long time, mostly in the form of blog posts. Was the process for writing a book very different from the way you approach blog writing? Uh, yes and no. There's, there is kind of a genesis behind this, which was, look, the benefit of a book versus a blog post is that in a book, you can kind of stretch your legs out and go long, tell a long story, uh, you know, and, 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 and go from there. Whereas in a blog post, you really only have a couple of seconds to catch people's attention. So a book, you can, you can go long. What's it, what was so when I, when I started writing the book, it was great. Let's write really long chapters. And my format was I'm going to write 10 chapters. They're going to be 5,000 words each, and that's what I'm going to do. And I quickly realized two things. One is that all of my experience throughout my career is in writing blog posts. So I have become uh, you know, good at writing a 1,000-word blog post. That's what I can do. 5,000 words is a totally different world. It's not... It's not just like, oh, it's just, I'm just going to write a little bit longer. Like to structure it and format, it's just totally different. So I, uh, I had 12 months to write the book. 
And after nine months, I had written two really bad chapters, neither of which actually ended up in the book. They were both 5,000 words and they were just bad. And everyone who was kind of, uh, you know, in my circle during this period was always saying, oh, how's the book going? And I would just kind of like change the topic. It just, it was, it was not going well after nine months of doing this. And then I kind of just embraced this idea that, look, no one reading a book ever says like, oh, that was great. I just wish you had rambled on a little bit longer. So after I had thought about that and I just embraced the fact that I write short posts, that's what I do. I changed the format and said, I'm going to write 20 short chapters. That's what this book is going to be. I'm good at writing short chapters that like people like succinct stuff. That's all it's going to be. There's actually a chapter in the book that is one page long. And when I turned it in, the publisher was like, "This has to be a mistake. This you're 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 missing. Are, are you missing a file here?" And I said, "No, that's that's all I have to say about this topic. And out of respect for the reader, like I'm done. That's it. I'm moving on." So you know, it started out very different to answer your question, but I actually like as I went on, I just embraced that. Uh, this book is a collection of long blog posts, and I'm not ashamed of that. And once I got over that shame and just embraced it, it became much easier to write. Now, so I, I think one of the things that I, I'm most impressed by is that it's really a finance book that isn't for finance people, right? M most writing in finance tends to be for people like us that are that are nerds about this stuff and want to learn all the ins and outs. Was that your intent? Was to write something that was really more general audience, but but finance specific? I think if we go back to around 2014, uh, there was a period where I was a columnist for the Wall Street Journal. And when I first started, they said, Morgan, your duty when writing this column for the Wall Street Journal is to write something that a hedge fund manager will benefit from, but that a complete novice with no experience will understand. That's what you have to do. If you're writing for a major newspaper, that's what it has to be. You have to hit everyone. And then, so that to me started this idea of like, how, how, like, how can I do that? How can I write something that is beneficial for a professional, but understandable to my mother? My mother, I always use my mom as an example of someone, she's a smart, educated woman, but she has no interest or experience in finance. Um, and so th that, that's always kind of been the goal. And I think, you know, if that's for, for lots of writing, I think if you can write something that people intuitively know and understand, but haven't yet put into words or need a, a good story to wrap their head around it and contextualize it and understand it within the context of their own lives, you can really move the needle in that sense. So there's nothing in the book. I'm, I'm open about this. There's nothing in the book that's new. There's no new information. I didn't do deep research and like uncovered. So there's nothing like that. I just wanted to take what people already know, even if you're a professional or if you're a novice, you kind of intuitively understand and explain it in a way that is hopefully interesting and easier to wrap your head around um, rather than trying to break new ground. And I think part of what makes you so successful at that is all the stories you bring in from other disciplines and other industries. How do you even begin to compile those lists of examples uh, to, to bring into the points you're trying to make in the, in the book about behavioral finance? I think it starts with this observation that finance is not the study of investing. Like it's like if if you only view investing through the narrow lens of a finance textbook, you're scratching the surface of what investing actually is because investing is actually the study of how people behave with money, how people make decisions with money. And that is a very broad field that incorporates a lot of the lessons and rules from other fields. So there are things like very valuable things that you can learn about investing from sociology and psychology and politics and history and physics and biology, like all these diverse fields that are very relevant to the study of how do people make decisions around greed and fear and risk and opportunity, which is what investing is. So once you embrace that, then 
like I, I never read investing books. I never read, I very rarely read economic books, but I'm very interested in, in investing and economics. But once you start viewing uh, finance through the lens of all these broad fields, you start picking up things from various fields. So most of my reading has nothing to do with this, but if you're just subtly looking, I mean, here's one example. Last week, uh, maybe this is two weeks ago, I was reading a book on uh, the ecology of trees, like how trees grow and force. It's a really fascinating book. It's called The Hidden Life of Trees. It's a very good book. And there's this part in there that says, look, uh, when a large tree drops a seed and then it grows a child tree that comes up from that underneath it, the mother tree is blocking all the sun. So the child tree below it actually grows very slowly because it doesn't get a lot of sun. Um, and since it's growing slowly, it grows very thick and dense because it's a slow growth. It just has a lot of time to grow dense and that makes it really strong. Now, if that's not the case, if you, if you take a seed and plant it in an open field where that child tree gets all the sunlight in the world, it will grow very fast, much faster than the trees being blocked by its mom. But since it grows fast, it never has a chance to grow dense. And since it, 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 it doesn't grow dense, it is very susceptible to rot and fungus. So that to me was just like instantly clicked of, if you try to grow too fast, you're going to be susceptible to rot. And like, that's a very poignant investing takeaway from this book on trees versus the trees that grow slowly, grow very strong. And those are the trees that grow up to be big mammoth oak trees. So I think once you start looking through the lens of like, how does this tie into investing? You start to see it everywhere. There's so many lessons from all these fields that are very relevant to investing. And that too, like that, that the takeaway from that is, People who are greedy tend to go broke. Like that's not a, a, a light bulb in, a insight. Everyone knows that. But if you can see it through the lens of other fields, it becomes much more powerful to you, I think. Yeah, that, that's a great example. And, and and I think in the book, one of my favorite examples with, that, that you talk about was uh, the janitor that really just accumulated so much wealth relative to what people thought he might have, right? And and uh, in, in our field, what we're trying to help people do is make good decisions and and to do the most with what they can. And, and that's such a beautiful example of it, that creating wealth doesn't have to be some incredible windfall. It doesn't have to be uh, that you earned millions and millions of dollars through some high income, high salary job. It's just making good decisions over and over and over again, and then being patient. Uh, and and I, I think your your book illustrates that so, so beautifully. I mean, so much of, of what wealth is, is not screwing up and letting compounding work. That's like the iron rules of building wealth over time. If you can do those two things, if you can consistently not screw up and give compounding the time that it needs, you'll be fine. And not only fine, but you'll probably do great. So I start the book with the story of a guy named Ronald Reed, who was a janitor and gas station attendant, who when he died, he left millions of dollars to charity. And all he did was he just took you know the couple hundred bucks he could save here and there from his job as a janitor and he invested in blue chip stocks and he left it alone for like 80 years. And if you do that, that's all, that's all you got to do. Like you don't have to complicate it more. Now, the problem with that is like 80 years is, is a long time. Like that is a big price to pay. Uh, but for people who are willing to pay that price of realizing that compounding and investing is a lifetime endeavor, it's not something of just like, oh, this year I'm going to become a good investor. Like, no, this is a lifetime thing that's going to take. If, if you are willing to pay that price, the rewards that you can get from investing, the benefits you can get are extraordinary. But very few people, like the reason Ronald Reed's story is, you know, blows people's minds is because it's so rare. Like how many people actually have the patience 
to invest for 80 years without touching anything while you're working as a janitor. Like there was a period where he had millions of dollars in his brokerage account and he was working as a janitor. Like not, not, like not many people will or even aspire to live that life. So he's obviously a huge outlier, but it's just the point that what really builds wealth is a combination of not screwing up and compounding. But, but in many respects, it's almost the identical story of Warren Buffett, just on a different track. Right. Yeah. And, and, and the, you know, the lesson rather than Buffett, rather than a janitor, Buffett was, uh, you know, early on in his career earning two and 20 as a fund manager. So he had a little bit more capital to invest. But it's the same thing. I, I make the point in the book that if, if you look at the track of Warren Buffett's life, 99 percent of his wealth came after his 50th birthday and 97 percent came after his 65th birthday because uh, that's how compounding works. And it, this is really important for Buffett because. Uh, if Buffett had retired at age 65, like a normal person might, or even a, a wealthy person, if he retired at age 50, like a, like a normal, very wealthy person might aspire to, you'd have never heard of him. The only reason that he's a household name is because he continues to invest at age 90. And that's important because a lot of people like us in this industry, professionals, go into huge research about how did Buffett do it. And they focus on how he thinks about moats and business models and market cycles. And I always want to be like, no, 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 no. He's successful because he's been investing for 80 years. That's it. That's just a fact of math that if he retired at age 50, he would have had 300 million uh, and he would have been one of like 7,000 people in Boca Raton who have $300 million. You know, there's, there, there's actually, there's a fair number of those people in the United States that you've never heard of. So time, like is Buffett a great investor? Yes, of course. But his big secret, like the rocket fuel of his life is just the amount of time he's been investing for. He's like the Betty White of investing. That's it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how many people today are familiar with Betty White pre Golden Girls, but she was a you know back then. She's just going. I also made this point, you know, relevant to the recent news. Joe Biden. This is a crazy fact I heard. Joe Biden has been a politician for one fifth of the United States' history as a republic. Uh, so he, again, like his career is the ultimate long game compounding. He became a Senator when Richard Nixon was president. Um, and so, yeah, that's just like, that's just time compounding to get to where he is today. Yeah. So, uh, talking about investing in patients there, there are always two sides of the coin when investing, we have the investor and then the entrepreneur on the other side, uh, you have the opportunity to work with a lot of entrepreneurs. Do you find that people fall into the same behavioral traps on both sides of that coin? Or do people look at things differently? I think uh, here's what's interesting. When I started working in, in VC, um, because I came from the Motley Fool, where you guys were at, which is all public market equities. So coming into that new world, I really thought that they were going to be completely different. A VC was just a, a different universe than public markets. And I realized pretty quickly, and I've, I've become more to appreciate that they're not. Like the Venn diagram between the two has a lot of overlap. There are things that are very different, but the, at the end of the day, greed, fear, risk, opportunity, it's all the same. It's all the same. Whether we're talking about VC or, or municipal bonds, like those emotions are all the same. Something that I do see a lot in startups, and this is understandable, is just the uh, desire to make things happen very quickly. Like let's let's gr let's grow this week. Let's grow this quarter. Let's let's go raise a huge round and you know grow our sales 10x this year. And sometimes it works, but a lot of times, just like in any other endeavor of investing, if you take something that needs five years to grow and you say, "Great, that's cool. Let's make it happen in one month," and let's just cram it in there. 
things can break really quickly in that in that situation. So you, you see that a lot in public markets, whether it's investors using leverage to just try to get the rewards quicker or building a business when people, because you know startups tend to move very quickly. If you try to force feed that into it, things just grow. Um, things tend to break. A lot of this we saw in recent years with SoftBank. Um, when SoftBank, the Vision Fund, which was a $100 billion VC fund, just had so much money to deploy that there were companies who were like, hey, we want to raise $10 million. And SoftBank would say, uh, great, we'll, we'll invest in you, but we want you to raise $500 million so you can grow faster. I mean, some of those numbers were literally that. And a lot of those companies that raised, that took more money, they tried to speed up their growth and it broke them. It just like some things can't be forced. And you see that in public markets and VC alike. There's your tree analogy again, right? That's it. That's it. They were they were planting the feed the seed in the open field. They got all the sunlight, which in this case was capital, and they just grew too quickly. And growing quickly at first feels great. You're like, look at me go, I'm growing. And then you realize that you never got dense and you're susceptible to fungus and rot, and then everything breaks. So I, I wanted to ask you about lifestyle creep. And and you give a couple great examples in the book, but but I, I really liked kind of the progression of talking about the baseball player on a rookie contract versus uh, more of a veteran player with an incredible salary and then comparing themselves up further and further on, on, on kind of the wealth scale. Um, my observation of this in, in, you know, working with clients has been, it's not so much that there's people out there that may have more. We all seem to know that, like instinctively, there's always another level, but it's really does, the people you view as your peer group. What are they doing? Uh, and, yeah. and you know that when you go to college with people, everybody's in college. Everybody lives in a crappy apartment. Once you get past that, certain people start to accelerate, and and that's where kind of that keep up with the Joneses mentality seems to come from. And and you talked about your own discipline and that you've kind of suppressed that lifestyle creep. Is that partially due? To, is your peer group also doing that, or do you feel like you've had to? really make a conscious effort to not look at kind of the group of, of professionals around you and, and accelerate? I think, I think I, I have peers that are both. I, because I work in finance, I'm sure this is true for you guys too. I have a couple friends who, because they've worked in finance and done well, have a lot of money. And whenever, if I go over to their house or see whatever, there is a little bit of FOMO that, that can hit me. And there's times where like, I want to suppress it. There's times when you know, has nothing to do with the actual friend. But there's times when, when I'm like, I, I don't want to be close friends with very wealthy people because I'm as susceptible to that FOMO and lifestyle creep as anyone else. It's very easy to be like, well, if he has that car, maybe I should have that too. And I just don't, I don't want to fall into that. So I think there is a little bit of that, of like, choose your friends carefully. Uh, actually, I, you know, I, I, but I do have, you know, uh, some friends who do very well, but that, that hasn't, hasn't, really impacted me that much. So it's, it's not black and white, but I think my wife and I probably just got lucky in the fact that a lot of what we like to do doesn't cost a lot of money. We're just so boring in terms of what we want to do is like go for a hike and read a book and hang out with our kids and whatnot. And that's been since we met in college through today. So it just had like the goalpost hasn't changed that much. The goalpost has moved. It's not black and light. And it's not like we live like college monks like like we used to but it just hasn't moved that that much i think it's really important that wealth is a two-side equation it's money in money out and the industry whether it's fund managers or even most financial advisors some financial advisors i would say the huge majority of the attention is on the money inside how can i improve my investing returns how can i earn more money how can i get a bonus how can i get a raise get a promotion 
And that's just half the equation. Like the other half of the equation is your lifestyle. And I think we would do a lot better in the industry. This is more towards the finance industry, less financial advisors, I guess. But we would do better in the industry if we realize that it's a two-sided equation and that managing your lifestyle is as important as increasing your returns for anyone. You know, we we know, I know, I'm sure you guys know people who make millions of dollars a year and spend millions of dollars a year and they are technically broke. And a lot of times they will reach a point, whether it's in the recession or, you know, something happens in their industry where they're screwed. And these are people who make millions of dollars a year. That to me is just the all the evidence that you need that this is a two-side equation and wealth is just the gap between what you have and what you spend. And you have to manage both sides of that with equal passion. So that's, you know, it's easier for some people than others to do. And I also make the point that there are periods in your life when social signaling can be important. If you're a young person trying to find a spouse, trying to find a mate, like your ability to dress well and socially signal to the world is important. I don't want to pretend like, oh, none of it matters. You should, you know, buy your clothes at Kmart. Like that's not, it's not, it's not like that. But I think people do tend to overestimate the benefit of social signaling and underestimate the benefit of independence and controlling your time, which is what wealth and money that you haven't spent can do for you in a beneficial way. Yeah. Well, it's just harder to reduce your lifestyle. And sometimes it feels easier to just make more money. And uh, we're coming off a year last year where in the market, it seemed like everyone could make a lot of money. So when we're talking about, you know, investor behavior, I'd imagine that when everyone's looking at their brokerage accounts and seeing that they were able to earn, you know, 30, 40, 50, 80, 90% returns, yeah. you might be facing this new style of everyday investor who has this uber confidence in their ability to self-manage uh, and be good at it. And, and maybe that'll affect the way people are thinking down the road. Yeah, I think whenever you have a year like 2020, it increases confidence much faster than ability, and that's that can be uh, you know that 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 can be very detrimental. I, th- I do think you have because a lot of the gains I think in the last year have been shown to be have come from and being fueled by new investors, the kind of Robinhood crowd that's jumping in, not in small amounts, but there's some days when penny stock volume is like 20% of all volume. Like some of the numbers recently have been have been. Uh, really interesting. Someone tweeted a couple of weeks ago, it was just like a small anonymous account, but they said, if you did not double your money in 2020, you have no business investing. And that's just like, that to me was just like a temperature check of where people are in the market right now in terms of their expectations and whatnot. And I'm sure a lot of that is going to spill into lifestyle creep. There's a thing a couple of years ago when Bitcoin had its first big run up in 2017, I think it was, of like the thing to do if you had made a bunch of money in Bitcoin was to buy a Lamborghini. And these were like not it, not like just anecdotal. Inc- there was like a significant number of Lamborghini sales because that was like the mark of doing well in Bitcoin. So I think whenever you have that, whenever you have these abnormal gains that are fueling lifestyle things. That's like a double whammy because not only are you going to have the emotional uh, pain whenever the investment returns unwind, but having to take a a step back in your lifestyle, having to go from the Lamborghini back to the Honda Civic, that hurts a lot. Like taking a step back is hard. Very easy to take a step forward. Taking a step back is just brutal. And even taking one inch back, going from the Lamborghini to the BMW, even that hurts. So I think people have to be very careful about any kind of situation where they are setting themselves up for having to take a step back in life. Uh, in, in in terms of their their lifestyle that they live. And if you realize how painful it is to be forced to take a step back, you'll be more cautious and careful about 
um, do you need to take a step forward? And like, how much benefit are you going to get to take a step forward given the risk that if you eventually have to step that back in terms of buying a smaller house because you can't afford the big one that you that that you bought, like that can be devastating for people's psyche. Yeah, I think that makes sense. So, you know, I, I've had the privilege of getting to hear you speak to to pretty large groups of investors a few different times. And a couple of those examples that I've heard you kind of speak about made their way into the book. And then there was definitely some new stuff in there as well. As you think about speaking engagements moving forward, is there is is it like a band and, and people are going to want to hear your greatest hits now and this stuff that you've put out there, that's what you're going to go out there and do? Or do you feel some pressure now to come up with some new stories, some new analogies to share next time you're in front of a group of investors to share some of these thoughts? I, I, I go back and forth on this and there's um, there's a few ways to think about it. One is, you know, you, you you brought up the analogy of a band and if a band is going on tour, do they do they create new songs for every show? Like, no, no, you, you practice your songs and you give them over and over again. Sometimes you give them over and over again for decades. And are there people who would, who want new songs? Like, yes, of course, even like the, yeah. But um, I think if a song is good, people like hearing it again. And there've been people who have viewed the same talk that I've given multiple times and no, like very few people complain. Even like the people who are putting on the events usually don't seem to care that much. I heard Jerry Seinfeld say um, uh, last year that when he left the show, when he left Seinfeld, which I think was in 1998, he then his whole career began uh, switched back to stand up. That's what he was doing. He wasn't on the show anymore. He was just going around to clubs doing stand up. He created a skit in like 1998, and he still today, 23 years later gives some of the same jokes that he wrote in 1998 for a skit. And he's, and he mentioned, he was like, look, who, who does anyone think they are to think that everyone in the world has already heard these jokes? Like the fact that I'm still giving them, like it's new audiences. Like everyone is not, and he's Jerry Seinfeld. Like the fact that he can keep doing that. And he said, you know, the people who are listening to multiple shows and hearing the same jokes, they obviously like what they're hearing if they keep coming back. And I also think that when like giving a talk is is requires a lot of practice and working out the bugs. Very similar to a, a comedy skit where by the time Jerry Seinfeld or Chris Rock does a, a, a special on Netflix, they've done those jokes hundreds of times in front of small audiences to work out the bugs and figure out what works and what doesn't. It's similar on, on, on a different scale, different level to giving a talk about investing where there's some things that might work in a blog post, a story that works in a blog post. And I think, oh, I'm going to use this in my next talk. And it just doesn't work in verbal form. It just, it just doesn't work. So if, if you're giving a talk in front of a big event, a big group in front of a thousand people, you got to make sure that the stories that you're telling, you've worked all the bugs out and you've told those stories in front of smaller audiences and realized that they didn't work. By the time you get to the big show, it's all working. So because of that, I'm always hesitant to try to work in new stories because who is the poor audience that you're going to guinea pig that on? Uh, and it's that it's that's definitely what it is. So I tend to change about 20% of my talk per year rather than just wiping it clean and starting over. That's dangerous. Every year I'll just come up with a couple of more stories. So when, when I give talks now, there's two or three stories in there that uh, are, are, are brand new that I just kind of worked in in the last couple of months. And one year from now, there will be new stories. And there will also be things that I've been giving for years. There's parts of my talk that I've been giving for five years now uh, because it's a story that I really like and I think that works. And even if people have heard it before, it's like, well, too bad. You're going to hear it again. And that's okay. 
I, I think that is Jerry's process too. It's it, it's normally about twenty to twenty five percent of his set that he turns over. And I, I've been a big big Seinfeld fan and seen him a few times live. And uh, yeah, yeah, no, that that's uh, you're in good company with that process. Yeah, <laughs> that, that was my thing when he said it. I thought, okay, if Jerry Seinfeld can do this, of course I can do it as well. Then. <laughs> One of the stories in the book that was new to me that really struck a chord was your telling about NASA's New Horizon spacecraft. Yeah. Uh, I think it's less than a paragraph in the book, but that was my biggest takeaway, uh, how on a three billion mile journey that took almost a decade long, they were able to forecast the arrival to its destination within a minute. And yes. thinking about that as a science and a craft, as opposed to investing, where you can't even possibly get to that level of precision was a really strong takeaway, especially coming from a finance educational background, which in my mind was taught as math. Uh, you know, finance is certainly not math when you think about it in that way. Yeah. There, there, there's this other story very similar that I heard. Uh, it was when they did Apollo 8, which was the first, they didn't land on the moon, but they went to the moon, went around the moon. Uh, the calculations that they did of when the spacecraft would go around the dark side of the moon, which is when it loses all radio communication with Earth, they uh, forecasted that down to the precise second. The very second that they thought they would lose communication is the very second that click it went out. Like those those calculations, and they were doing those like without computers. They were doing those with slide rules back then. So something like astrophysics is so precise, and you can get these things so incredibly perfect down to the hundredth decimal point. And I think there's a danger that we view finance like it is that, like finance is astrophysics. And the more complicated and precise the models that we use, the better we're going to do. And it's just not the case whatsoever. I think the best we can do in finance is just to get things like in in the same in, in, in the same solar system as like where we're getting it. Like if we can just lob something and get it in the right direction, that's the best that we can hope for with a huge room for error about what we need. And if you can make a forecast or like have a financial plan and say, this is my plan, but I have such a room for error in this versus saying like, okay, at age 65, I'm going to have $1.2641 million. Like it's just not, if you can just get it a big room for, I think fewer things are as important in finance as room for error because room for error gives you endurance and endurance is what gives you, is what makes compounding work. So you just have to have a huge gap between what could happen and what you need to happen is really what you need in finance. And a lot of people don't like that discomfort. A lot of people like having a very firm, precise plan down to the dollar. And I think those are the people that tend to screw themselves up because the least, it, the, the, the less room for error you have, the more susceptible you are to surprise. Now in the universe, when you're traveling to Pluto, there's no surprise. There's no wind, there's no resistance. You just get on your path and you go. As long as you don't hit an asteroid on your way, you're, you're gonna get it. But the real, in finance and in economics, that's not it. Every single year, every month, there's something being lobbed at us that we did not see. The biggest of which lately has been COVID-19, which of course no one was talking about ever before last January. And then it became the biggest economic story since the Great Depression. And I think if you look historically, that's usually the case, that the biggest risk is what no one sees coming. It's September the 11th, Pearl Harbor, the Great Depression, which no one saw coming. It's these things that no one is talking about until they occur that really requires a pretty big degree of room for error in your planning, in your savings, in your investing outlooks uh, to have the amount of endurance that can keep you in the game over time to do well. Yeah, I, that that really resonates with me. And I think that's part of why we were so excited uh, to have you on the show is you know the, the name of our 
podcast is Check Your Balances, but our firm is called Craftwork Capital. And that really is a nod to uh, Professor Demoterin at, at NYU. And he describes valuation as not being an art or a science, that it, it simply can't be either. And that analogy, uh, in my mind, was so accurate, both for, for valuing a company as well as financial planning. It's not an art or a science. It, it's a craft. Uh, and and that, that it has to meet in that intersection where you know, we're practicing our craft. It is, it is, there is no world in which we can deliver a financial plan or an investing thesis that is a hundred percent accurate and, and leaving that room for, for humility, uh, really in, in, in how you make those, whether they're projections or predictions, uh, is, is so critical to the process. You know, one thing I've always thought is that I think the closest field to investing in finance is probably medicine. Because look, medicine is a science. There, of course, there's like we, we know a lot about how the body works. We know a lot about treatments. So there's a very big science element to it. But there's also so much of health and medicine that is not science. Like you can be the smartest doctor from Harvard. You can know everything. You can have the Nobel Prize in medicine. But if you don't have the willpower to have a good diet and get enough exercise and enough sleep and manage your stress. Like none of it's going to matter. You can still be very unhealthy. Or if you go to your doctor, you go to the best doctor in the world and you say, doc, what is my health going to be like 10 years from now? Who knows? Who knows what's going to be? Who knows how your lifestyle is going to change? Who knows if some cells in your body are going to turn cancerous? Like you cannot forecast that with any kind of precision. And I think it's the same in investing. We do know a lot of the science behind investing of how to value companies, discounted cash flows. We have so much data on the economy. But what's going to happen in the next 10 years? Like who knows? Because a lot of these, even if it is a scientific endeavor, it's uh, there's so much left to chance and randomness which is what happens with cancer in the human body or it what happens with bear markets and recessions and whatnot. And there's a lot that, re, that even if it's a scientific endeavor relies on psychology of even if you know the science, do you have the willpower and the behavior to have good behavior, to eat a good diet and exercise or to save and keep your emotions in control? So I think that's where uh, finance and medicine like really merge. There's a lot in common there. I think that's a great example. Uh just from what I've been hearing and reading, the trends in medicine are also to build better communication and uh, relationships with patients to cover that aspect that can't be treated with, you know, drugs, uh, making sure that people are focusing on their total wellness as opposed to just, you know, internal medicine. But it's hard. And it's hard for the same reason in finance, which is that in medicine, people want their treatments to just to be science. And what I mean by that is that people want a pill. Like, I'm sick. Like, give me the pill to fix it. When a lot of times the answer, of course, I'm, I'm not a doctor. You guys aren't doctors, but this is my understanding. A lot of time, the, the cure to fix it is like, no, you need to lower your stress and eat a better diet and get some sleep. People don't want to hear that. That's not exciting. It doesn't seem real. And very similar in finance where people are like, what's the best stock for me to get rich? And people, and the answer is like, no, 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 no. You need to save more money and be more patient and lower your expectations. That's the real answer. But just like the doctor telling you to eat, to eat a better diet and get some exercise, people don't want to hear that answer, even if it's what works. I, I love that example. And, and certainly that rings true for us. So, so Morgan, what's next for you? Are, are you with, with this book now kind of uh, done do you think you'll continue to write and, and pursue other books? Is it back to blog posts for you? What, what's in your horizon? 
it's always going to be, it's always going to be blog posts, but I, I, I will write books every couple of years. I've sold, let's call it book number two, um, to a publisher. I haven't started writing it yet, but that that'll be on the plate this year. I'll, I'll start, I'll, I'll, I'll write it in 2021. It'll probably come out in 2022 and psychology money is also being turned into a documentary. So that'll be another big project for, for this year that I'll be working on. And other than that, it's kind of the same old blog posts and, uh, and speaking, obviously speaking, you know, lately has been, uh, from my webcam at home, which is kind of nice. I don't have to travel that much anymore, but I'm, I'm also excited to hopefully get back out on the road when, uh, when, when, when COVID and vaccines allow us. Awesome. Well, we, we really look forward to it. Uh, for anybody that has not read it, the psychology of money, it's on bookshelves. Uh, also the audiobook, Chris Hill doing, doing the audio. I thought it was great. Uh, my, my first time consuming it was, was listening to it and, uh, lo- love to hear a friendly voice. Yeah, no, it's great. Chris reached out to me before I started writing the book and said, Hey, if you do an audiobook, I want to do it. And it was like, just say no more. Done, of course. For one thing, everyone who has every author who has read their own audiobook says it is just absolutely agonizing to do it, to read read out loud your own words, because you get to a sentence where you, when, when you read it out loud, you're like, oh, that was an ugly sentence. So the fact that Chris did that for me and I didn't have to do it was great. And his voice is wonderful. Chris is a, is a, is a dear friend of mine. So it was great to have that partnership. Yeah, definitely pick up the book. Morgan's a great Twitter follow and you can read his blog on the Collaborative Fund website when he posts there. We really appreciate you joining us today. Thanks guys. This has been fun. Mm-hmm.